let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And I have become acutely aware in these last few weeks what I have bitten off in trying to preach through Matthew, Revelation, 1 John, all at the same time. And uh, sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I say, what, what happened to you? What is going on in your mind that you would try to do something like this? But God blesses and we thank, thank him for that and uh, pray that the Lord will give me the study time that I need to, to bring this to you. I think it's extremely important to look in the word of God and, and stay in that and, and know what God would have us to do what it means to know him and you can't know him if you don't know the word that tells you all about him so we're looking here in first uh, John chapter 2 and this evening we come to the fourth message on verse number 2 and I thought that it would it was just extremely important that we very carefully look at this and we and we do understand clearly understand John's meaning now we're going to have just a very short review of the previous messages in just a moment but the main point that we've been dealing with in the last two messages has been the subject of the atonement and when you see the word propitiation in verse number two that automatically brings the atonement into view and we're discussing this particular aspect of the atonement in these past couple of messages which is the scope of the atonement and there's not a great deal of a great amount of preaching that's that's done on this today because people just automatically assume evangelical christianity just automatically assumes that in order for god to be a good god he must have provided salvation for every person without exception and that every person ought to have their fair chance to go to heaven now i don't have time tonight to discuss with you fairness Uh, But we never want to ask God for fairness because we would be in bad shape if we did. And I don't think that God had fairness in mind. But he did have a design for the world and he had a design for our salvation in particular. And his design was to bring all glory to him. And so we maintain that God is not glorified if Christ died to save all men when in fact the greater part of mankind is lost. And so we've spent a great deal of time discussing the question, did Christ die for all people? But it really boils down in my mind to one proposition and that is, has God done everything? everything with man that he intended to do and I believe the scriptures teach that if God intended to save every person in the world then all the world would be saved now you might have trouble wrapping your head around that but if there's one person in hell that Christ died for then to that degree Christ's death was unsuccessful And I don't know of anyone on either side of this argument that would readily admit that Christ's death was unsuccessful. And so they say then that the intention of Christ was not to save all, but to make all savable. And so the atonement then was made for all people, but it really takes our faith to activate it. Well, that involves another problem. If it takes Christ's death... um, plus our faith to complete the atonement, then that means that salvation is actually completed by man. And it means that Christ didn't do enough in his death to actually save people. And so all the glory for our salvation doesn't go to God. Some of it, at least whatever we think some minute part of it is, should go to us. But that's also a problem because faith is a pretty big element, I think. 
I mean, when you have faith in Christ, uh, it means that you have to, or faith has to overcome natural hardness. It has to overcome spiritual blindness. It has to come, overcome the sinful nature. It has to overcome man's natural bent. And so faith has to be very powerful. And so if we say that it takes faith to actually actuate the benefits of the atonement, then we have played a huge part in salvation. Well, you might think, well, we could get around that by saying that faith comes from God, and we can uh, get around that argument. Isn't that what Ephesians 2, 8 says? Well, yes, it does say that. But does God give all people faith? And if faith is, um, if the atonement is actually actuated by our faith, by God-given faith, then how could it possibly fail? So there's lots of questions to answer if Christ's death was intended to make people savable rather than to actually save them. So if we approach the question, I think, in the right way, without prejudice, prejudice towards, uh, towards popular opinion and what we think should be right, then 1 John 2 verse 2 is really not a perplexing scripture. I don't think it's that hard for us to figure out. So the scripture says, starting in verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now the purpose in the very beginning of these messages was to explain what did John mean when he said that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And that's an important scripture, and it's worth our review. So we started off with this. We weren't actually talking about the atonement particularly, or the scope of the atonement, but we uh, spoke about the satisfaction of Christ. The Bible says that Christ is the propitiation for sin, and what that means is that Christ has satisfied God's wrath because of sin. God is a holy and righteous God, and he expects nothing less from his creatures. And so he wants us to be holy, expects us to be, and God is angry because we've sinned against him. There's a hell that people are going to die and go to because God has wrath against sin. But the Bible teaches, of course, that Christ died to take away that wrath. He took away the penalty of our transgression against God's law. So every demand that God had concerning the law was paid for by Christ. The penalty of all of our transgressions were taken care of in him. And the personal nature of that is expressed in Isaiah 53, that he did this. It says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And that tells us that Christ's suffering was in our behalf. It was for our sins. And then you notice there in the last part of verse 5, it says we are healed. And that means that the breach has been filled in. We're no longer separated from God. Now we can be brought back into full fellowship with God. And that takes place because of Christ and his death. So the point is that God is satisfied with what Christ did or else we couldn't be healed. Now the second thing that we talked about was the substitution of Christ. And again, Isaiah shows us that Christ died in our place. And that substitution was allowed because God had a prior covenant with the Son in which his death would be the satisfactory 
punishment for our crimes. And John chapter 10 and John 17, among many, many other places, that's very clear to us. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. And the commandment is that Christ would give his life, and in turn, God would give eternal life. And so Christ's life would substitute, or his death rather, would substitute for those who are given eternal life. Then just before the crucifixion, John 17 says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And so eternal life has been reserved for none but those who have been given to Jesus by the Father. And his death was for them, and it was for them alone. And so when men die and go to hell, they don't suffer for sins that have already been punished in Christ on the cross. Now the third thing that we talked about, and the subject that we're on now, is the subjects considered. Who are the people intended by verse number 2 when John says our sins and for the sins of the whole world? And that seems very simple, most people think. That obviously means that he died for everybody. And so we tackled this question about the atonement. Is it unlimited and universal? We know something is afoot right away when John differentiates between ours and the whole world. John is the apostle, one of the apostles to the Jews. Now we notice something that Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 9. It says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go to the heathen and they to the circumcision. So Paul and Barnabas were to preach to the Gentiles, and James, Peter, and John went to the circumcision. That means that their ministry was primarily to Jews. And that ought to help us somewhat with what he's saying here in 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. So it was to Jews that John was primarily ministering, and the whole world here are the Gentiles that Paul ministered to. Now, salvation... Is not for Jews only, but it came to the Jews first, and the Jews weren't wholly convinced that any Gentiles would be saved. And so uh, the Scripture says, and Paul explains this, at one time the Gentiles were strangers from this covenant that God had given. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And so the point of 1 John 2 verse 2 is exactly this. The Jews and Gentiles both have been included in God's plan of salvation. And 1 John 2 verse 2 does not speak to the question of whether Christ died for all people, whether they land in heaven or they go to hell. 
Christ died for all classes of people. And that's reiterated in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. John says, And this I beheld, after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Now we discussed that scripture in some detail in the last message. So when we were through with that, we moved on to some difficult passages, some puzzling passages. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, Hebrews 2 verse 9 among others. Uh, those were representative of passages that seemed to be a problem to the doctrine that we're trying to teach. But we found out as we looked at those, and we looked at those in the right way, considering all of the scriptures, that they actually have no conflict. And Scripture doesn't have conflict. If we come up with one, it's because our interpretations of Scripture are wrong. And so we found there is no conflict with these Scriptures and what uh, uh, God says and what or John says in 1 John 2, verse 2. And so we looked at John 3.16 and we started discussing that. And we looked at the use of the word world in that passage. And we found out that harmonizes with 1 John 2, verse 2. So all of it works together. Revelation uh, 7, 9, John, 1 John 2, 2. Uh, Hebrews 2 9 and we learned that all of these passages work together they support one another and so we saw that in John three sixteen, that their world uh, God is the world there, there does not does differentiate I should say between Jews and Gentiles or God doesn't make a I get it right here in a minute God does not differentiate between Jews and Gentiles but the world includes all of these different groups of people classes of people and we remember that Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and and he was not at all convinced that the Messiah would come that the son of God would give his life for Gentiles that they could actually be saved so I promised that we would go back to John 3, 16 and 17, and we would look at those verses from just a little bit different angle. And the second question we have about the atonement, is it potentially a possibility? Does the death of Christ provide salvation potentially? Does it only make salvation possible, or did the death of Christ infallibly secure salvation for those that it was intended? Now at this point, you might not even be aware that most evangelical Christians believe that the death of Christ only made salvation possible. And that's really the thrust of the argument that the atonement doesn't save all, but it makes all savable. So it doesn't really guarantee the salvation of any particular person. So let's go back to John 3.16. We're going to look at something here that shows us in another way what the scripture means. So look at, if you'll turn to John three sixteen and 17, and we're going to look at a particular word here in the, uh, in the 17th verse. John three sixteen and 17, most of you, of course, can quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now let's put on our thinking caps there a little bit and stick with me here as we try to think this through. Now we notice there a particular word, the word might, that comes at the end of verse 17. But that the world through him might be saved. Now that's a kind of a tough word, isn't it? Might means that Christ died to make salvation possible. So all people could be saved. Isn't that what that means? 
Well, that is the common understanding of it. And if might means makes it possible, then the common interpretation of John three sixteen and 17 would hold up. That, that notwithstanding all the other verses that we brought into the equation here and explained what it really does mean. But we're going to look at this word. And we're going to say, what did Jesus mean when he said that the world through him might be saved? Let's turn a few pages over to John chapter 10, if you would. I've told you before, nobody explains John better than John. So we look at John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking here in verse number 17. He says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Now let's read that verse like people would like to read John three sixteen and 17, how they think it should be interpreted. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I possibly take it again. Well, was it ever possible that Christ wouldn't arise from the dead? I mean, according to Paul, the resurrection is the crux of the gospel. He says in Romans 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So there is no salvation without Christ being raised from the dead. So Jesus did not mean there that it's only a possibility that if he lays down his life, he will possibly be raised again. Let's look at another instance of the word in John eleven four, And in each of these cases, please be aware of this, that the word might here is translated by different Greek word, from different Greek words, but this word might is what we have in our English dictionary, our, our English version, rather, and it appears several times throughout John. So John 11, verse 4, it says, When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, this is the story of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was sick, and he was going to die. And Jesus knew that he was going to perform a great miracle. He would raise Lazarus from the dead. So, was it possible, only possible, that that God would get glory through that? Is it only possible? We'll come back to it in a second. Look at another one in John 7, John 17, verse number 12. John 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou givest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture might be fulfilled. Son of perdition, who's that? That's Judas. And it was foreordained that Judas would betray Christ. And the scripture that Jesus is referring to here is Psalm 41.9 and Psalm 109. 41.9 says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 109, verse 8, Let his days be few, and let another take his office. And so John 17.12 is clear to us that Jesus meant here that in time the scriptures would be fulfilled. See, this was before that Judas had betrayed Christ. It was before the garden incident when Judas came up and kissed him. It was before Judas fell from his apostleship. And so in John 11 verse 4, when Jesus said that God would be glorified, that God might be glorified, that was four days before Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so he didn't mean that it might happen. It would happen because he was going to do that miracle. In John 10:17, he meant that if he laid down his life in time, he would take his life back. He would raise from the dead. 
Now we go back to John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So now we see that the last part of 17, the certainty of that is very clear to us. The world through him will in time be saved. Now, not possibly be saved, but will be saved. Now, if that's true, then world can't mean everybody. It has to be those that are actually saved. Now, I hope that you can see that that difference there. So we have two things that are proved by this. One is that Jesus couldn't possibly have meant that God gave his son for the entire world without exception. Because if that was true, then there would be universal salvation. Everybody would go to heaven. Secondly, the last part of verse 17 tells us that what Christ intended to do with his death was accomplished. And the salvation of the world, meaning all that Christ came to save, is certain. So salvation is not potentially a possibility for those who are the objects of his love that we find in John 3.16. God so loved the world, Jews and Gentiles, and he saves them. He doesn't make it a mere possibility that they will be saved. Now, let's go back to an earlier thought. If God sent Christ in the world to save people, and according to John three sixteen and 17, they will be saved, and they're not saved, then what happens? Well, that makes Christ a failure. He is a colossal failure, because the greater part of the world today, and of all those that have lived in the past, are not saved. Now, let's don't worry about rolling that back 2,000 years to get to the time of Christ or go back all the way back to the time of Adam and think about all the people that have died without Christ. Let's just go back to yesterday. Let's go back to yesterday because there, every single day, there are 155,000 people that die. The greater part of the world dies and goes to hell. So mission boards are pleading for support in what they call the 1040 window. And that's where the 1040 window means the the area of the world where the greatest population is of people that aren't Christians. And so they pray that we'll send people there with the gospel because they've never heard it. And so if world in John 3.16 means everybody, then, and then John 3.17 tells us that Christ miserably failed. Not once did he fail, but nearly 155,000 times every day Jesus fails. And so in order for John 3.17 to be true, Christ's death must have done more than to make salvation possible. It secures the salvation for everyone that it was intended for. Now, you read the scriptures again in that light, and you go through this, and you'll never find a place where anyone, Jesus, the apostles, anyone ever hinted that the death of Christ would not do what it was intended to do. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 13 and 14, 7, 13 and 14, that many are on the road to destruction. He said few people are on that road to eternal life. The gate is narrow, he said. Few there be that find it. And before he died... Millions of people are already in, were already in hell. When he lived, there were millions of people that were on their way to hell, and he knew that they weren't going to get off the path. They knew, he knew that they were going to die and go to hell. And so when he died, are we going to say that Christ was punished for people that were already in hell? And for ones that Christ knew right then, they're not going to believe. They absolutely will not believe. He knows that. And so was he punished for their sins? Well, let's look at another scripture. 
Did Christ's death really secure salvation or did it make salvation possible? Well, if it secured it, then we can say that every person for whom Christ died will be in heaven and there won't be any exceptions there. If he didn't secure it, as most evangelicals say, then we only have a possibility of salvation. So we want to look and see what did the blood of Christ actually do? Well, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. We looked at these scriptures a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to take a second look at this and make a supplemental point from what we talked about before. The ninth chapter of Hebrews starts out talking about the tabernacle. There are two rooms in the tabernacle, and verse number 1 speaks of the first room. And that's the holy place. There was a golden candlestick there, a table of showbread. That's where the altar of incense stood. You'll find that in verse number 2. In verse number 3, the writer mentions that there is a curtain there that blocks the second room of the tabernacle from view. And in that second room, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that was the mercy seat. And that's where the high priest would come and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. And the writer says that the priest could daily go into the first room, but he could only enter into the second room one time per year, and that, again, is with the blood of the sacrifice. He can't go there without it. And then it goes on to explain that each time that the priests sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice, it was never sufficient to take away sins forever. And so he came back, and they repeated that, that same thing year after year, that sacrifice is going in to the Holy of Holies, and there sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. And the whole point of him explaining this to us is the insufficiency of that sacrifice compared to what Christ actually did with his own blood. Now, everything that I've just told you is explained in verses 1 through 14. Look at verse numbers, numbers 11 and 12. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, there we're forced to decide... What did Christ's blood actually accomplish? What did it not accomplish? By his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, not potentially, not that he made that possible, not that everybody can have redemption, but he obtained it. The Bible says he obtained that. So redemption then is obtained by his blood. So the picture here is the high priest going into the tabernacle. He goes in on the day of atonement. He sprinkles the blood of the mercy seat. And the object of that picture is what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. He made atonement for our sins. And so the writer is clear that he obtained the design, and that was redemption. Now, we take the picture a little bit further. The priest went into the Holy of Holies. He takes the blood in of the sacrifice. He does all of that. And the Bible says that he sanctifies the place. Now, this is a type of Christ who is the antitype. And so that means, an antitype means that the symbol foreshadowed the reality. Now, let's look at verses 24 and 26, and we get the antitype. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." 
So just as the priest had this objective with those often trips into the sanctuary there to put away the sins of the people, so Christ, by his one-time offering, put away the sins of people forever. Now, if your sins have been put away forever, then what would you possibly have to be condemned for? If salvation, I mean, if the atonement, if Christ, what he did with his blood, puts away sin forever then what are you condemned for? Now, it either does that or it doesn't do that. Now, the point here is that Christ's sacrifice worked for what it was intended to do, and it's so much better than anything that the Old Testament priests did. Now, we go back to 1 John 2, verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so, we have to ask this question. When that high priest in the Old Testament went into the tabernacle and he offered the blood on the mercy seat, and that's the same thing as the place of propitiation. That's what propitiation means in the New Testament. For whom did that priest offer the blood? For which people did he go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement? I mean, did he go in there to offer blood of the sacrifice for Canaanites? Did he go in there to offer it for the Egyptians? Well, no, we know God brought his people out of Egypt. He brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. He gave them a law. He organized them into a nation there. Gave them all the the laws to live by. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that nobody but God's people had representation at that altar. Nobody had it. And when Christ entered into the holy place not made with hands, and when when he died on the cross, when he did all of that, He did it for only those who have representation at the altar. And that would be his people. He represents his people. So the sacrifice is made for them. It's made for them alone. And he says, or the scripture says, eternal redemption is obtained. So 1 John 2 verse 2 says that Christ propitiated God for the sins of the world, for Jews and Gentiles as well. So Christ died for some of both, that eternal redemption was obtained for them. Well, we want to answer one more question. We'll do it briefly because we've been all around this question in the past couple of weeks. Is it purposeful and particular? Is it purposeful? Well, absolutely, there was a definite purpose in mind. Jesus stated his purpose in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, while I'm explaining something here, find right quickly Luke chapter 15. The scripture says that Jesus came. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, let's wait just a minute with that, won't we? Let's wait wait just a minute there. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. But Jesus only saved a few. Now, everybody was lost, or everybody is lost, aren't they? I mean, that's what scripture says. All we like sheep have gone astray. But apparently, Christ then didn't find very many. What? Why? Was he not looking hard enough? Well, we're getting close to blasphemy there, so we get a little bit more reverent about this, and I'll tell you that Jesus found everybody that he was looking for. Now, let's look at Luke 15, and we're going to read here the parable of the lost sheep. Part of it. Luke 15, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. Now, I wish I had time to go into that extensively, but let's make this real simple, real quickly here. The 99 that don't need repentance are who? He's speaking of the scribes and Pharisees. And haven't we studied that in, in Matthew's gospel? The scribes and the Pharisees already thought they were holy enough. They said, we kept, we've kept the law. We're righteous. They didn't think that they needed any repentance. And so Jesus wasn't looking for them. He was looking for his own. He had some that he had his eye on. You know what? He looked until he found it. That's the point of the of parable of the lost sheep. And just like that, Jesus has a purpose. He came to seek that which is lost, and he always finds who he's looking for. Now listen to what Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He came to save sinners. Well, if he didn't save them, then the saying is not faithful and this saying is not worth accepting. In 1885, John McLaughlin Armour wrote, If law can yield it all, if the universe created and uncreated can afford to have a law in its higher realms melt like wax, if God's love can in any respect be shown to violators of law at the expense of justice, if Christ having done all and having suffered all, he was raised up to do and suffer, justice, exact justice, pure and mere justice, did not permit, require, demand, necessitate the deliverance of those whom he represented and whom he came to redeem, then Christ died in vain. Then is the offense of the cross taken away. Then the wages of sin is not death. Then we are all at sea as to the necessity for Christ's intervention. Then we are ready to disperse on voyages of discovery that we may find good reason for Christ coming into the world at all and especially for his suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross. Christ had a purpose without doubt, friends, and he fulfilled that purpose. Now, finally, we ask, was it particular? John 10, 15, and 16. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You know what we have right there? First John 2, verse 2, all over again. The sheep of one fold, the Jews, and the sheep of the other fold, the Gentiles, they will hear his voice, and then they will be one fold with one shepherd. Jesus said, them I must bring. Not, I will potentially try to bring them. I will do my best to bring them. He said, I must bring. Were the whole world of mankind equally loved of God and promiscuously redeemed by Christ, the song which believers are directed to sing would hardly run in them admiring strains to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God, etc. Romans or Revelation 1, 5, and 6. A hymn of praise like this seems evidently to proceed on the hypotheses of peculiar election on the part of God and of a limited redemption on the 
part of Christ, which we find more explicitly declared, Revelation 5.9, where we have a transcript of that song, which the spirits of just men made perfect are now singing before the throne and before the Lamb. Thou hast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, whence the elect are said to have been redeemed from among men. Revelation 14 verse 4. Those words were written by Augustus Toplady who was the author of the hymn Rock of Ages. David Benedict the great Baptist historian said this and this is writing from about the mid 1850s. The doctrine of the atonement has been differently understood. Now listen to this statement. The old churches pretty uniformly held that it was particular. And he's talking about Baptist churches. The old churches pretty uniformly held that it was particular, that it is that Christ died for the elect only, and that in his stupendous suffering no respect was had to nor any provision made for any others of Adam's ruined race. Charles Spurgeon said, They believed that Judas was atoned for as much as Peter. They believed that the damned in hell were as much the object of Jesus Christ's satisfaction as the saved in heaven. And though they do not say it in proper words, yet they must mean it, for it is a fair inference that in the case of multitudes, Christ died in vain, for he died for them all, they say. And yet so ineffectual was his dying for them, that though he died for them, they are damned afterward. Now such an atonement I despise, I reject it. I may be called antinomian or Calvinist for preaching a limited atonement, but I'd rather believe in a limited atonement that is efficacious for all men for whom it was intended than a universal atonement that is not efficacious except the will of man be joined with it. I could go on and on and on. I mean, there's so much that we could say about this subject. Isaiah 53.11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You know, that verse right there alone is enough to tell us all we need to know. He justifies those that he bore their iniquities. One more place and we'll be done. John chapter 11. If you'll turn there for a minute. The scripture that we're going to read here comes after all of that commotion about Uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't know what to do with that. Here they have a man that was in the tomb. There's no doubt about that. Four days later, he comes out, and he's talking with people, eating with people, going on with his life. They didn't know what to do with him. So they got together, and they had a little powwow here to see what are we going to do about this guy that Jesus raised from the dead, and what are we going to do with Jesus? Now pay attention here, because God put words in the mouth of a donkey one time, And here he puts words in the mouth of a wicked high priest named Caiaphas. Verse 47, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one 
the children of God that are scattered abroad. One more time, right here we have 1 John 2, verse 2, all over again. Jesus would die for that nation, that's the Jews. And not for that nation only, but also for those that are scattered abroad. Who scattered abroad? He should gather together in one the children of God. And I hope I don't have to explain to you who the children of God are. Which people are the children of God? Those are people that are saved. Those are only the, the only ones that are children of God. So who did Christ die for? He died for a particular people. Those who would be the children of God. So what do we do with all this information? We go out and preach the gospel. Nobody ascertains that they're the children of, one of the children of God unless they actually repent and believe. And that's why we preach to everybody. We preach to everybody because we don't know who they are. And when they're saved or when they repent and when they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we know they were the children of God. And God has gathered them in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. We thank you for this great verse of scripture that we have and all the avenues that it leads us down and how many we can learn so much more about you when we look at the scriptures as you would have us to and study them out. And Lord, that you've given us just an understanding of this. And it's not something that we would ever want to give up once we found out this truth. And we just thank you for it, Lord. Bless your people. And we just ask you, Lord, to help us to give the gospel to those that are dying without Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.